You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello, and welcome to Macrodose, a podcast hosted this week by me, Antonia Jennings, bringing you your weekly fix of everything economics in a quick 15-minute roundup. As you'll know if you tuned into last week's show, guest hosted by the excellent Kojo Karam, James is off on summer holidays at the moment. But don't worry, he'll be back in the hot seat next week, bringing you up to date with all the latest news from the slow motion car crash that is Britain's economy today. So, my name's Antonia Jennings, and I'm an economist and researcher specialising in economic democracy, local government, and community wealth building. On last week's show, Kojo zoomed out to take a look at the big picture behind the global economy, asking who and what do we think of when we think of economics? Was the dominance of neoliberalism always inevitable? And how can an honest reckoning with global history help us begin to reimagine our economy today? This week, I want to ask that very same question, but by zooming in to look at the micro level, examining the state of local British politics. First up, local governments are going bankrupt. Why and what can be done about it? Second, climate change is a local issue. So how can decentralisation help to mitigate ecological collapse? And finally, we return to a listener question. GDP is a crude and outdated metric, but can we break it down further to work out what's really going on? Time for our first story today, the bankrupting of Britain's local councils. According to a survey conducted last week of local authorities across the North, the Midlands and the South Coast, at least 26 councils in some of the most deprived areas of England are at risk of bankruptcy within the next two years. That's nearly one-third of local councils across the poorest parts of Britain. The Local Government Association has warned that around 90% of councils are using dwindling financial reserves to keep themselves running, and many authorities simply have, quote, nothing left. This news follows a string of local councils which have already filed for bankruptcy in recent months. Over the past five years, we've seen a disastrous property investment binge by Woking's Tory council and a doomed borrowing spree at Tory-run Thurrock. We've also seen Labour-run Slough reveal a catastrophic £100 million black hole in its budget back in 2021, while Labour-controlled Croydon announced its third bankruptcy in two years in November 2022. So, why is this all happening now? It is not, as many in the legacy press would like you to think, the sole product of disorganised local administrators and badly managed budgets. Many arms of local government are in a funding crisis. In England, local governments have had their funding squeezed by £15 billion from 2010 to 2020, which is a real terms cut of 20%. When you combine this with the ongoing impacts of inflation, the legacies of austerity and the pandemic, which massively increased demand for public services, you can begin to see why local governments are teetering on the brink of irreparable financial ruin. So, what happens when a council declares bankruptcy? Well, local governments in the UK don't go bankrupt in the way that a person or a company might. Councils get money from tax, from charging for services such as parking, as well as funding from central government. They use this to provide both legally mandated services such as social support and discretionary services like sports and leisure centres. Since the 1980s, councils in the UK have not been allowed to run a budget deficit, meaning they have to balance their budget over the course of a year. If, during that year, the Chief Financial Officer realises the council does not have the money to meet its spending commitments, they will issue what's known as a Section 114 notice, which effectively freezes council spending. 
Five local authorities that took part in last week's survey said that they were in such dire financial straits that they were already considering issuing such a notice for 2023-2024. After the Section 114 notice has been issued, the council needs to respond with cuts. In extreme cases, national government appoints external commissioners to take charge of the process and usually that means halting all but the most essential spending. Of course, the impacts of reaching that tipping point start well before a formal declaration of financial difficulty. Non-essential spending is limited, research is stunted and new programmes of work are prohibited. This is clearly a political process not only in deciding what gets cut and who faces the brunt of those cuts, but also in who and what gets bailed out. A central government governed by one party is usually less sympathetic to a local government controlled by an opponent. Similarly, it reflects very badly on the party of government when one of their flagship councils fail. In 2017, the Tory leader of Surrey County Council was outspoken about the financial challenges faced in an area partly represented in Parliament by the then-Chancellor Philip Hammond. This culminated in a plan, which was eventually aborted, to allow Surrey to raise council tax by 15%, which is three times the limit set by central government. Meanwhile, under Tony Blair's government, the Labour-led Hackney Council was bailed out to the tune of £25 million. As cuts are becoming harder and harder to find, with essential services already cut to the bone, these systemic questions of how and where funding is allocated are becoming even more vital. But it's important to take a look at the wider system too. This local government crisis is in part a product of conservative policy, but it's also part of a much older story of political centralisation in the UK. Cross-country data conclusively shows that the UK is the most centralised country in Western Europe in terms of the legislative devolution, revenue-raising power and agency afforded to local government. This contributes to stunted progress across a multitude of areas of our economy, leading to a regional health, productivity, jobs and disposable income divide that is higher than any comparable nation. Indeed, the ex-UK government finance chief, Sharon White, who oversaw the UK spending cuts in her role as second permanent secretary at the Treasury, has herself admitted that, quote, decentralisation tends on average to be more closely associated with both stronger growth and better public services. So in terms of productivity and efficiency, our grossly underfunded and over-centralised governance systems are hindering the UK's economic prospects. In the face of polycrises that James spends so much time on this podcast discussing, it is even more important that we have properly funded and properly able local government. Environmental breakdown, the cost of living crisis and health crises play out very differently across our towns and regions. And in many cases, it is our local governments that are best placed to deliver tailored solutions to meet each area's needs. This news last week that so many of our local councils are on the brink of financial ruin should be a cause for deep concern for so many reasons. Not only are we crippling our support systems during a cost of living crisis at a time when so many people are struggling, but we're also cutting off potentially one of the most vital tools we have for dealing with the crises of the future. From ecological collapse to public health crises, we need well-funded and functional decentralised political systems. With an election on the horizon in 2024, it remains to be seen if the Labour Party will wake up to this fact. It's well past time to reverse course on the defunding and debilitating of our local governments. Okay, that brings me neatly to our second story today. Climate change is a local issue and we need local government to be able to adapt. 
Over the past few years, we've seen record-breaking temperatures, wildfire incidents, and significant infrastructure disruption, with extreme weather from heat waves to flash floods leading to thousands of excess deaths across the UK. In this context, the Local Government Association has stated that urgent action is needed to prepare our villages, towns and cities for the impacts of climate change and is calling on the national government to accelerate local adaptation as part of its forthcoming National Adaptation Programme. So national action is of course necessary to set the frameworks for decarbonisation and ensure that the country adheres to international standards. Yet the complexities of justly transitioning from carbon across our 51 cities, 935 towns and 6,000 villages cannot be the job of Whitehall alone. Travel, heating and power generation varies immensely across the local economies within the UK. Logistically, one plan from Westminster can't meet the needs of each area and morally, the centralisation of power and resources also limits the extent to which the transition can be equitably distributed and democratically just. The task of decarbonising the UK requires combining the kind of organised management that enabled the rapid building of social housing following the Second World War with the level of public engagement and communications seen through the early stages of the pandemic. Without properly empowered local government with long-term secure funding, this task is impossible. Of course, local government isn't a homogenous group. Specific responsibilities and remits vary depending on the type of local government. Two-tier local authorities, for example county councils or district councils, unitary authorities, metropolitan authorities and combined local authorities all have different responsibilities and powers at their disposal, resulting in a patchwork quilt of governance. This multi-layered setup has always been complicated, but tackling environmental breakdown has a unique variety of obstacles. In the delivery of a just transition away from fossil fuels, we face a relatively urgent set of new challenges and responsibilities within a governance structure that has little precedent of working in such a coordinated and holistic manner. But these difficulties have not stopped action on the local level. Local government ambition currently vastly outstrips national government pledges. Over 95% of councils have declared a climate emergency and from these declarations, ambitious decarbonisation plans are in the process of development, the majority with net zero target dates well ahead of 2050. As part of these efforts, tens of citizens' juries have been established across the country, enabling local governments to co-create the green local economies of the future together, allowing a shift from action done to to done with the communities they serve. The connection between local government and their local communities is reflected in public attitudes. In 2021, a local government association survey found that councils are the most trusted form of government to address the climate emergency, with 40% selecting them ahead of national government at 28% and world leaders at 15%. And this trend isn't just in climate policy. A separate OECD study found that general trust in local government is 7% higher than in Westminster. To most of us sitting at home, reading headlines or watching our Westminster politicians on television, this probably doesn't come as a great surprise. Whereas the House of Commons feels like a remote reality TV show that you can never switch off, local governments are solely responsible for the communities and economies they serve, allowing for much higher rates of engagement and a specific focus on serving one locality. By extension, they better understand the area's needs, challenges and opportunities. When it comes to decarbonising our society, this connection to place is of paramount importance. 
But as we addressed in story one, the main issue here is, of course, funding. No core funding is allocated to local government for climate activity. Instead, what has been provided is piecemeal, without an overarching strategy and often distributed via a series of competition-style funding pots. Compared to the scale of funding needed, these pots are small and most often only for short-term programmes. For retrofitting of homes and building low-carbon housing, for example, there are six funding schemes available to local government. For heat networks, four, low-carbon transport, nine, and woodland and trees enjoy a bountiful eight schemes. For local governments already in a position of highly limited resource and capacity, applying and navigating these schemes is a time-consuming endeavour that leaves many without any access whatsoever, often having spent big in both time and money just to make an application bid. If we're at all serious about reaching net zero by 2050, it's obvious that a simpler and more efficient funding system is urgently needed. Estimates vary significantly, but most have a net cost of funding the transition from carbon at around 1-2% to of GDP. But the benefits of a low-carbon economy are of course not only monetary. In the government's own net zero review, it was concluded that despite the financial costs, a successful and orderly transition for the economy could realise more benefits than an economy based on fossil fuels. The review stated these could include improved resource efficiency for businesses, lower household costs and wider health co-benefits. To put it simply, we know that decarbonisation must be at the forefront of all government policy moving forward. And we know that local government is best placed to deliver the nuanced policies necessary to make this process work for everyday people. The economic, demographic, physical and industrial makeup of different regions around the UK is vastly varied and a one-size-fits-all national approach will never be enough. Any transformation in our society must be a product of democracy, grounded in the communities that will be affected by these changes and must determine how they play out. If organised and funded properly, local government can and should be the primary mechanism to carry our economy through this fundamental process. Right, time for our third and final item today, and as promised, we're returning to another listener question. This week's question comes from Robin, who got in touch on the email a while back to ask, as all wealth is ultimately owned by people, could GDP be calculated for subgroups of the population, say for each decile? It might be informative if it shows the bottom deciles being in recession for long periods. Thanks for the show, it is very interesting. Thanks for your question, Robin. And you make a very good point. This data does in fact exist, and unfortunately, it shows a very depressing trend of, as you say, the poorest not benefiting from economic growth in this country. However, GDP is not only calculated through what individual residents in this country are doing. Let's just recap on what GDP, or gross domestic product, actually is. GDP is assessed each quarter by the Office of National Statistics, or the ONS. The ONS collects data from thousands of UK companies, and to complicate matters, there are three ways to measure GDP. You can calculate it by adding up for everyone in the country the total value of goods and services, the output produced, everyone's income, or what everyone in the country has spent. Or in other words, the four components of gross domestic product are personal consumption, business investment, government spending, and net exports. So in short, individual productivity is added to government spending, business investment, and net exports. 
you get different figures depending on which method you use because there's never enough data to build a picture of the economy that's 100% complete. Moreover, GDP for the whole country does not show the spread of wealth, i.e. who actually has access to those resources. So it's a pretty problematic measure to say the least. If we look at income inequality broken down by decile, the UK is very unequal compared to other developed countries. The majority of households in the UK have disposable incomes below the mean income. This includes wages and cash benefits and is after direct taxes like income tax and council tax, but not indirect taxes like VAT. Median income, or the most common income, is a much better measure of how income inequality is doing. The median income was rising by 2.2% on average for the last five years before the pandemic. However, in 2022, incomes for the poorest 14 million people fell by 7.5%, whilst incomes for the richest fifth saw a 7.8% increase. That same year, households in the bottom 20% of the population had on average a disposable income of around £13,000, whilst the top 20% had over £83,000. When original incomes are compared, the difference is even more striking. The richest fifth had an income more than 12 times the amount earned by the poorest fifth. Another good way to use GDP to highlight inequality in this country is to return to the point I was making earlier and look at regional differences. At the extremes, London's output is two and a half times that of the northeast of England. And while London is exceptional, the differences between the remaining regions are still significant, up to 50%. To put this another way, the output per head of the southeast during the first lockdown of the pandemic is similar to that of Wales in normal times. It would make sense at first glance to assume that London is simply economically successful. Four out of every £10 that the Treasury receives is from London, with only 13% of UK residents living here, and the city has a plethora of world-leading industries. But London isn't a universal success story. Four in ten children live in poverty, and it has the second highest regional unemployment rate in the country, after the Northeast. 27% of all Londoners live in poverty, which is the highest of any UK region. While London's median income is the highest in the UK, once housing costs are accounted for, London barely hovers above the national average. So, what does this show? Firstly, it shows that growth, or GDP, is not a complete measure of how an economy is doing. And because of this, higher growth does not always correlate with better life outcomes for residents. We've heard a lot of talk in recent years about levelling up policies. But these seem doomed to fail, not least because the cost-benefit calculation used by the civil service in their green book relies on these absurd metrics. What we often see is investment in already richer areas because the stats are suggesting that these are the areas in which GDP is primed to grow further. To put this into a practical example, getting people into their well-paying jobs in London via a new train line will be more productive for the UK economy and our GDP figures, but arguably it's not as beneficial as, say, reinstating the 2,160 bus routes cut last year between 2022 and 2023. That's 20% of all bus routes in the UK. The 2021 allocations of the levelling up fund, which is controlled by central government, is an investment of just £32 per person in the North. This compares to a £413 per person cut of funding in the North and a £388 per person cut in funding across England in annual council service spending over the last decade. 
Taking us back to the theme of today's show, we can see here how the system is tending further and further towards centralisation, as public spending from central government fails to account for the reality of when and where resources are most needed. Four years ago, 95 pence in every pound paid in tax was taken by Whitehall. Despite the rhetoric around levelling up, this number has now increased to 96p. So thanks for that question, Robin. This is such an important issue and one that is central to my work. If we keep relying on outdated and inefficient metrics like GDP, we're never going to be able to efficiently meet the needs and realities of people on the ground. And, as I'm sure James will tell you when he gets back next week, the multiple and interlocking crises we're all facing today and are set to face in the future aren't going to wait for us economists to fix our stats or for national government to get its act together. If you take one thing from today's show, I hope it's that we urgently need to rescue our struggling local governments because against corporate hoarding and special interests, local democracy might be the only way we have of charting our way through these turbulent economic times. Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. 